Well, good morning again. It's warm up here, so I had to take off my jacket, which I didn't plan on doing today. So for those of you who weren't here, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of bringing you God's word this morning as Pastor Greg is out of town. Uh, and when Pastor Greg asked me to, to preach this particular message, uh, I was very excited. And the reason that I was excited was because I love the Old Testament. And we're preaching uh, exegetically through a, a Pauline epistle, a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a specific group of people in a specific time period, addressing several things. But this particular section of this New Testament letter deals significantly with Old Testament themes and examples to build upon Paul's argument. And so Pastor Greg asked me to preach this, and I was very excited that I get to, to fall back into some, some Old Testament use in the New Testament. But also, when he asked me to preach this, I could see how the Holy Spirit was already at work in this message. Because this week, I started a class in my final semester of what I'm really praying is my final time in school. Um, but I started a class this last week called The Old Testament Use in the New Testament. And, and I could just see how God had already ordained each of these things to, to happen and to fall into place in the exact week at the exact time that we would be preaching this message at the same time that I start this class. And so I just kind of stepped back in awe of what God was already doing before I even was able to dig into the Word and to study and so today, we are going to go through Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. If you would stand with me as we read the scriptures together. And if you can't read that, um, just listen to me read it. It says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Father, we, we come humbly before you this morning in awe of your word, in awe of how you work in and through the circumstances of our life. But mostly, God, we come humbly before you in awe of the work that you have done to bring us from children of slavery to children of promise. 
Father, I would pray this morning that as we look at your word, that you would speak to us. That you would speak to us through your word this morning and let us see how we can live this truth out in our lives every single day. Father, I would pray that you would not let the words that leave my mouth today be my own, but your words only. Let me speak this morning through your power and through your spirit, Lord. And let your spirit move in the the people who are hearing this word today, that they may receive it and that it would go out and do exactly what you've promised it would do, and that's to change our lives. Father, we ask for these blessings today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. I want to give you a little bit of background on, on what Paul is talking about here in this section of his letter. You see, this section of Paul's letter is steeped heavily in Old Testament information. Paul is building an argument based on Old Testament truths that the original audience would have undoubtedly understood. We have to remember that that the people in the churches in Galatia were being pushed by Judaizers to convert to Judaism. They should convert and be Jewish first and foremost before they could become Christians. These people are pushing the congregations to fall under Mosaic law and all of these pharisaical laws that have been put into place by the the temple to keep people from sinning against God's law. And so we know that as the, the Judaizers are pushing this church into that direction, the church would understand these Old Testament references. And Paul specifically uses Abraham and Sarah Because Abraham is a hero of their faith. Abraham is a father of the chosen people. Paul uses this illustration as a way to communicate to the people in Galatia in a way that they would understand what it was that he was saying. Now, I don't assume that everybody here understands what it is Paul is saying. And if we don't understand what Paul is saying to the churches in Galatia, we're going to miss what he's saying to us today. And so I want to take some time to give this background information to recap the story of what Paul is talking about. And then I want to look at how this applies to those in Galatia as well as how this applies to us. We see in Genesis 15... Verses 1 through 6 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what shall you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, You, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. In this section of Genesis, we see that that Abram 
Uh, This is the name of Abraham before God changes his name. Abram is concerned that he is going to have to give his inheritance to, he says, a member of my household. This would be one of his, his bond servants in his house. This would not be a child. He's concerned that his inheritance and his blessing is going to go to somebody that is not his biological heir. But we also see that God takes Abraham and promises to him that he is going to have children. He is going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And this is a high point for Abraham as he's communion, having communion with, communion with God and communicating with him. And God promises him these things. And then you get into Genesis chapter 16 and you see that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was not happy that she didn't have any children. And she starts to think about these things, and she decides that she's going to take matters into her own hands. That she's going to come up with a plan that would give Abraham an heir and give their family a family line that could be continued. And so she convinces her husband to go and to have a child with their bondservant, Hagar. Now, as we think about this, we, we know immediately that this is wrong. This is not acceptable behavior for God's servants. But when you look at the the culture at this time, culturally speaking, this was perfectly acceptable. In a house in this culture, if you did not have an heir, you would take yourself a bondservant and have children so that you could have an heir. It was culturally acceptable. Now, we know today that just because something is culturally acceptable does not mean that it is acceptable by God. It doesn't mean that it is the right thing to do. So Sarah looks into her own hands, and she takes these things into her own hands. Even though it was acceptable culturally, it was not something that God approves of. We know that it's not approved of by God because God does not bless the child of Hagar how he had promised Abraham his descendants would be blessed. So we know that God does not approve of this. God does not give the land that he promised, the promised land, to Ishmael, the the son of Hagar and Abraham. Because Ishmael is born of the flesh, as Paul describes it here in Galatians chapter 4. And when his brother Isaac is old enough, Hagar and Ishmael are cast off to go and to live in the wilderness. They're sent away. But things are different for Isaac. Paul says that Isaac is the child of promise. That he was born according to the promise. And this promise was not for Ishmael. It was for Isaac. God's promise to make the offspring as numerous as the stars, was not a promise for Abraham and Hagar. It was a promise that was meant exclusively for Abraham and Sarah. Now I want to touch really quickly uh, on how we know, or, or the things that we know that are wrong in this situation, and how they unfold, and how God deals with these things. When I first look at this, I think about two things. The first of which is how, how Sarah takes God's plan for her family. She takes what God has promised and she decides, I'm going to act on my own strength, in my own might, and I'm going to do the things that I know and understand. 
You see, Sarah knew what God's plan was for her family. She knew that that things were going to work how God had said they were going to work. Yet in her limited understanding of how life works, she didn't know that that was possible. She didn't know and understand how God was going to do what he said he was going to do. You see, what Sarah knew was that she was an old lady. And old ladies cannot have babies. That's what she knew. She knew that God had a plan for her, but it didn't make sense in her mind. She knew that God had promised Abraham descendants and that they would be great. Yet, he didn't have any. Abraham didn't have any kids, even though God had promised that he would. And so she comes up with this plan. But she's not the only one to blame in this plan. Because as she goes to her husband and tells her husband, Abraham, the plan that she has come up with, that he should go and have a child with their bondservant, Abraham doesn't stop and say, by no means am I going to do that. God has promised that we would have descendants and I trust him at his word. No, instead Abraham says, that sounds like a good idea. And he goes and he has a child with Hagar. He didn't trust God either. He trusted his wife and her plan more than he trusted God and his plan. Either that or he feared his wife more than he feared God. One of two things is true. Either way, we know that this is Abraham and Sarah getting ahead of God's plan for their life. I think back to when I got out of the military, and I've shared this story many times with many people. But when we got out of the military in 2012, uh, it was a huge decision for my family. And it wasn't even one that, that we had started praying about in 2012. We had started praying about it a year beforehand. And, and we prayed and we prayed, my wife and I did. And we sought godly counsel. We sought godly counsel because we knew what God was calling us to do, but it didn't make any sense in our mind. Surely God is not going to call us to get out of the military. Things are going well. We're serving him in these ministries. God has taken us to all of these places through the military and we're able to proclaim the gospel everywhere that we go. Surely he is not going to call us out of the military. But the more we prayed about it, the more we felt God calling us to do that. And I remember talking to a friend of ours and their, their advice to us was in the form of a question. And this question has, has stuck with me since that time. So this was December of 2011. We're talking to a friend. We told him, you know, we really feel like God is calling us to get out of the military, but we really, we just don't quite understand that. And our friend looked at us and they said, do you have a history of getting ahead of God's will for your life? And it just struck me. I mean, to the point that here I am so many years later still talking about this one question. Let that that be advice to you that that when you give somebody godly counsel, they're going to listen. They may not listen right away. It may be years later before they come back and they remember how you spoke to them a word of God. But they will remember godly counsel. But what they were getting at was exactly what has happened here for Abraham and Sarah. They, They knew what God's will was, and rather than being patient and waiting on it, they got ahead of God's will, they took matters into their own hands, and they operated based on their limited knowledge of things. And it doesn't go well for them. 
The second thing that they do that God disapproves of is on the how they decided to take things into their own hands. So first, he doesn't approve of them taking things into their own hands and operating under their own knowledge, but then how they decide to do it. You see, from the very beginning of creation, God has made each of us individually to have a spouse, a husband or a wife. And that is one of the covenant relationships that God honors. As we take a spouse for me, as I take a wife, God honors that covenant relationship. And that relationship is designed to be between my wife Gretchen and myself and nobody else. And we see that, that as Abraham steps out of his covenant relationship with his wife and steps into a relationship with somebody else, that there are horrible consequences for this. An entire separate nation of people is formed. You'll see it in Genesis 21, that the Ishmaelites comes from this descendant of Abraham that was outside of what God was doing. I think, I think that that is enough background information for where we're at and what this means for the church in Galatia. As we look to what this means for the church in Galatia, I start in verse 28. Galatians 4, 28 says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Paul says that the, the, people, that he is right, or the people that he's writing to that they are now children of promise. He uses the same term for these people as he used for Isaac. You are now children of promise just like Isaac was. That they are now the heir that the Lord had promised to Abraham. Paul is telling them that those of them who are in Christ... Those people who believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross have been moved from children of wrath, moved from children of the flesh to children of the promise. The verse starts off with, now you. He's indicating that these people were not always children of promise. This is not a position that they were born into. They were not born into the, the Jewish family, like Jewish people had, had been before the coming of Christ. Before Christ comes as a sacrifice, people were born into God's chosen people. Born into God's family. Since Christ, we are now adopted into God's family. And Paul is saying that, that now you have been moved from a child of the flesh to a child of the promise. This is something that has happened. It's something that they now receive in their salvation. And with that salvation comes the promise that they had given to Abraham. The, the Lord gives Abraham this promise and it is fulfilled in Christ. If we look at, at verse 8 of Galatians chapter 4, it tells us that these people who now Paul is calling children of promise were once enslaved. The children of the promise were once enslaved. Verse 8 says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Their status at that point before they knew God was enslavement. They were enslaved to the ways of this world. 
But we see in verse 7, he says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is amazing that Paul would be writing to the church in Galatia and saying, those of you who were once far away from God, those of you who were distant from God, are now brought close and adopted into his family. You were far away, but now you're close, and this is through the work of Christ and Christ on the cross and by nothing else. Those who were once nobody, they're now part of the family. They're now children of the promise. They were children of the flesh. Now they're children of the promise. And with the promise, they have become an heir, as we saw a few weeks ago as Pastor Greg preached through, through that section. They have become an heir as they have become a child of promise. But being an heir doesn't mean that their life was going to be easy. We see in Galatians 4, 29, it says, But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What Paul is saying is that those who have been outside of the family of God have been persecuting those of God's family from the very beginning. Persecution has happened. Those outside of the family persecute those who are in the family. Jesus himself explains this truth to us in John 15. And he tells us why these things happen. He says, if the world hates you, remember, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is Jesus speaking to us. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember, the, world, or the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my words, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on the account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Could you imagine the implications of Jesus saying that last sentence to those who were in the church of Galatia, trying to force these new believers into becoming Jewish, to, to force them into the Jewish religion? These are extreme zealots for the Jewish faith, extremely religious people pushing people towards Judaism, pushing them towards them. And Jesus says, they're persecuting you because they don't know God. Could you imagine the shock on the faces of those religious people when Jesus says, you don't even know God? Because that's what he's saying. He says they hate me because they don't know God. Those who don't know God are trying to lure God's people away from his family, to bring them out of his family. This is what the persecution is about, trying to bring people away from God. It's the work of Satan. You know, we, we read in, in James that, that even the demons know God, and they shudder. You see, they know how this is going to end. 
They know that they're not going to succeed. They are going to lose. And so Satan does everything in his power to lure people away from the church, to lure people outside of God's family before the end of the world. Does everything he can. And I think today that one of the, the biggest places that things like this happens is in the church. There are churches around the world that are filled with people who think that they are saved. They believe that they will have eternity in heaven with Jesus, yet they don't believe that Jesus is the way that that happens. They don't believe that the sacrifice of Jesus is how they are going to enter into heaven. They believe something contrary to that, whether it's a gospel of works or whether it's, it's something else. But they are filling the churches with people. And these churches look at it and they say, you know, if we keep people busy enough, if we give them enough to do, they won't realize that they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If we keep giving them stuff to do and keep them busy, they're not going to realize their need for Jesus Christ because they're so busy doing religion. There are churches around the world who are filled with people who are going to hell. This is the work of Satan. This is the work of the devil, that he would lure people away from Christ and replace a relationship with religion. Okay, I've gotten a little bit ahead of myself. Sorry. Um, there's something else that this means for those who are in Galatia. Paul uses Abraham as an argument against what the Judaizers are teaching because Abraham was a typical argument that Judaizers would use to push people towards Judaism. Their argument and their reasoning was, we have descended from Abraham, that we can trace our lineage all the way back to Abraham, and therefore we know that we are God's chosen people, as God has promised Abraham, descendants as numerous as the stars. The Judaizers took pride in this. This would be something that they beat their chest over and said, we can do this. And Paul says, oh yeah, you forgot something. Abraham had more than one son. And the sons of Abraham were not all children of promise. Because Abraham went outside of God's will and had a child with his bondservant. He says that, that to those who are in slavery, those who are under the law, they're still children of Abraham too. Just the Ishmaelites. What are we to do with those people? What are we to do with the Judaizers who are pulling people away from the gospel of grace? We see it in Galatians 4.30. Essentially, he says, cast them out. Have nothing to do with them. Throw them out of the church because they are bringing people away from Jesus Christ. They're luring people away from the gospel and replacing it with their religion. And I want to start with what this means for us on this same point, the same idea of, of what it means for us, not because I think this is the most important re, or thing that we can pull out of this and apply to us today, but because I think this has direct application to us corporately. As a church, we need to take this matter seriously. You know, I've mentioned that, that there are churches around the world filled with people who are actually luring people away from the gospel rather than building the kingdom up. 
I think what makes it hard is that these people may not even know or realize that that is what's happening, and that is how Satan is using them to further his agenda. So it makes it extremely difficult for us. When we look at the life of an individual and we say, how do we know that they are living and and bringing glory to God and not bringing shame to him and bringing people away from him? And it may be so subtle, you know, it may not be so obvious to us when we look at it and be like, well, you know, a false teacher is usually easy to identify if you know the word of God. But it may be something as subtle as a person who comes to church on Sunday morning and at church they have it all put together and everything is great in their lives and they know all of the Sunday school answers and when you ask a question, they raise their hand and they say, Jesus, because 95% of the time that's the correct response in Sunday school. They come to church and they have it all put together and they act like everything is okay. And then they leave here and they get in their car and they let anger take control of their lives. And they're yelling at their children and really their life is falling apart around them. But they've come to the one safe place where they can share their burdens with somebody and they've pretended like everything was okay. Maybe it's the person who confesses with their mouth, Christ crucified, yet their life doesn't reflect that they believe that. And they go on and they continue sinning. They lure people away with their lifestyle because they're teaching people that it's okay to live according to the world. It's okay to live according to what the culture says is okay. When we know that it is not, we just read the words of Jesus that says, if we live different than the world, the world is going to hate us. They would love you if you lived like them. That is not what we are called to do. So what are we to do today with individuals who continue to live a life of sin? With individuals who are are pulling people away from the church by the way that they live or the words that they speak? Jesus outlines for us some church discipline. And he says the first thing you do when a person is sinning is you go to them one-on-one. You go and you speak to them. You tell them that they are sinning and you call them to repentance. The whole goal of any church discipline ever is that a person would repent of their sin and be restored to the congregation. But that's not always what happens. And so when we go to an individual one-on-one and we say, brother, you're sinning, you need to turn away from this, and they look you dead in the eye and say, no, I'm not. You have to be able to do something else. So Jesus says, in that case, if they refuse to repent and turn away from their sin, go to them with one or two witnesses. Go to them with somebody else who knows and understands that this person is sinning and that you can go in a group of two or three and say, brother, you're sinning. Again, you go in this group with the intent that they would repent from their sin and they turn back to the way that Jesus is calling them to live. But again, we know that's not always the case. And so there's more to church discipline. If you go to a sinner in the presence of two or three, and, and to be sure, we're talking, about, we're talking about members of God's body here, people who are part of the church and who are sinning. If you go to those members in the presence of two or three and they refuse to repent or outright deny that there's any sin in their lives, even in the presence of multiple witnesses, you bring them to the church. And then as a church, you call them to repentance, and should they refuse to repent, you do exactly what Paul says to do here in Galatians chapter 4. Remove them from your presence. 
that you cast them out, you send them away. And it sounds harsh. It sounds hard. You may sit back here and and rationalize in your head, why would we send them away from the one place that they are going to hear Jesus crucified every Sunday? Why would we do that? Sounds too harsh. And I will be honest with you. It's harsh. It's hard. It's a difficult thing to have to do. However, we do it remembering that the goal is still repentance and restoration. If you go a little further in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, you see that these people can be restored to the church. Even those who have been cast out. We do it knowing and, and praying for them and continuing to pray for them that they would repent and be restored. But what would be worse than casting them out would be to allow them to continue in God's church, running rampant, a lifestyle of sin, and allowing them to lure people away from the gospel of grace. So in the church in Galatia, what this looked like was they allowed the Judaizers to stay in the church and to keep preaching their warped version of what the gospel was, and it was bringing people away from the gospel of grace. That looks different for us today but it's the same effect. We have to cast those people out and pray that they are restored and that they would repent and remember that discipline, any discipline, is done in love. And that's why we do it. We do it because we love them and we love our church. We love the church at large. Paul says in Galatians 4.31, I think I skipped ahead somewhere, 431 through 51, he says, So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I think we have to read those two verses together. You know, chapter breaks, verse, verse breaks, all that stuff. None of that's the inspired word of God. That is somebody sitting down and said, Here's how we should read it. This is all one thought and it all blends together. That we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And for freedom, Christ has set us free and that we should stand firm and not return to the yoke of slavery. When Paul talks about the yoke of slavery here, he's not exclusively talking about slavery to sin, but also slavery to the law. We have to remember that we have not been born children of the flesh. In Ephesians 2, we were called children of disobedience, sons of wrath. This is what our life was like before we knew Christ. According to the example that is set forth here, before we knew Christ, we were sons of Ishmael. But God, being rich in his mercy, raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. He gave us an inheritance, not one of slavery as if we were sons of Ishmael, but ones of promise as if we were sons of Isaac. This is what is important to us. This is why we stand up here and proclaim the gospel, because it was the work of Christ on the cross that moved us from sons of disobedience, children of the flesh, to children of promise. made us heirs with Christ. If we remember back a couple weeks ago as Pastor Greg was 
preaching on verse 7, something kind of stood out to me. And I think it plays into where we're at today. And honestly, I'm preaching, so you get to hear it. In, in verse 7, I'm just going to read it to you really quickly. I've already read it once. It says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We are heirs through God. Adopted into his family, moved into children of promise. And what has stood out to me in this section is that this is a present tense use of the word heir. Paul does not say that you have been adopted into the family and made sons, and therefore you will be an heir. He says you are now a son of God, and you, will, or you are an heir. We are an heir currently. In present time, right now, an heir, and as an heir, we inherit the kingdom of God. You see it in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is, is teaching uh, in this, amazingly enough, crafted sermon on just an assault on this pharisaical legalism that they're seeing in Galatia as well. In, in 5.10, he, he talks about how that blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the same Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. These are all things that us, as being children of promise, have now inherited. Not that we are already in heaven. Not that this right now, this life as a Christian is heaven. But that we know that when we die and we move on to eternity, we will be in heaven. Our entry is guaranteed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is not something that will happen later, but something that we have now as an heir. And the thing about an heir, a good heir is concerned with the image of the name. What your name carries an heir to a family is concerned about the legacy of that family name. And they do everything that they can to protect that family name, but more than protect it, do everything that they can to make that name look good. So that when you give your inheritance to your children, they inherit a family name that is well-respected and well-liked, and not the opposite. As heirs to Jesus Christ, it is our job and our duty to make him look good. To be concerned with the family name, the name Christian, and understand what that means for us. It's important that we live life believing that, that Jesus was crucified because of our sins. But more than that, because Jesus was crucified, as a result of our sins, we have been given as an heir to the kingdom of God. This is the most important point that I can make that I think Paul makes is at verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. We have been moved into this from children of wrath to children of promise. Our life has been taken from, from complete disobedience to God and moved into glorifying him with our lives. And Paul has, has crafted this argument all the way through Galatians up to this point. And the capstone of that argument is this allegory from Genesis 15 with Abraham and Sarah, Hagar. He capstones this argument. He says, you were once children of Ishmael. 
You were once that, but through the work of Christ, not on your own. You couldn't do this on your own. That's what he's been saying in the last four chapters all the way up to this point. You cannot do this on your own, but Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, has made you a child of promise. The only thing that I can think of that is a a decent response to that is to take communion together as a church. Um, Brad, just click to my last slide. I've, I've skipped over a lot of things. Communion itself means in remembrance of. This is what we do in remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. This is why we do it. And we're going to take communion together here in just a second. And at First Baptist Church, we take communion with an open table. What we mean by that is you do not have to be a member of this church. You don't even have to be a regular attender of this church. But we do ask that you know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we ask that, and we don't just give communion to everybody and anybody who ever wants to take it, is because we take seriously the caution that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I'm going to pray for us here in just a second. And as I'm praying, I want you to search your hearts and your lives for those things that you're holding on to. Those sins that you know that you can't give up on your own. Realizing that Jesus Christ's sacrifice is something that has to happen so that you can give up those sins. Laying those down at the foot of the cross. Discerning the body and knowing that your heart and your mind is clean. Take time to praise as it's being distributed and we'll consume together in just a minute. But I want to pray for us first corporately. As a church, I want to offer a prayer for us. I'm going to do that now. Father God, I thank you today that that you have moved us from children of the flesh, children of wrath who were dead in our disobedience. You have moved us to become children of the promise through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, on the cross for us, paying a debt that we could never pay, making a sacrifice that we could never make. Father, we know in our hearts that this was not something that we could do on our own. We know that we could never earn any of this, how, exactly how Paul has explained it to us in this letter to the church in Galatia. We know that it was given to us by you. That you have made the sacrifice. That you have loved us and shown your mercy to us and that we did nothing to earn this. So we come to you now as people who are poor in spirit. We come to you realizing that we are nothing without you. Father, as we take this time right now to to celebrate communion, to remember the sacrifice that you made on our behalf, Lord. I pray for this congregation that we would offer up a clean heart to you, that we would lay down our sins and the strongholds that are in our lives, lay down our disobedience as a church at the foot of the cross, knowing that your blood has covered that sin. 
Father, I pray for this congregation now that you would move among them today. I pray that as they're searching and examining their hearts over these next few minutes, that you would bring to their minds these things that they need to let go of. Those sins that they don't even realize that they're doing, Lord, that you would make it evident right now as the communion elements are being passed out and that they would be able to take communion with a clean heart as your word cautions us to do. Father, I pray that for this church in Jesus' name. Amen.